Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 233 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the random western novel episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that if you just kind of google random things you will end up finding out that there is an ebook out there by Jake Logan and it's called Slocum 233 Slocum and the Lone Star Feud yes just a random western ebook and random dogs barking as well it sounds like your dog is into westerns. He is. And I, of course, am Matt. And then, of course, coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. So, Tim. I think the best of episode made us a little weak. You think so, huh? Maybe. I don't know. I can't tell yet. Maybe the dog knows something that we don't. I guess so. Goodness gracious. So, tell us, Tim, how was your time during our first ever best of episode? It was interesting. I visited Utah, the great state of Utah, home of the Mighty Five, for the first time ever. And I'm still getting used to, I was about to say civilian life, but I guess normal life with not having to hike or walk eight to ten miles every day and look at beautiful canyons and park wildlife. It's taking a little while for me to get back into California Los Angeles hot apartment living. Oh, I can I can relate. I having been at uh, Disney World last week and walking an average of 10 to 12 miles a day in the wonderful Orlando sun, which honestly I got to say the weather really was about as perfect as you could ask for. Never went above 90 the whole time we were there. Uh was not humid at all and um um, you know, brief bursts of uh, cloud cover throughout the day. Not never enough to make it overcast, but just enough to kind of give you the occasional breeze, even when you were standing in the sun. Um, definitely made the maneuvering much easier, but still, you know, twenty-eight thousand steps a day—that's hard, even for a five-year-old. So, who's excited to be there? And you made her walk every single step, just about, really and truly, steps. just about. <laughs> there were yeah i i did I, I i made her i made her walk it i said you know life's tough it ain't all disney walk this shit and <laughs> she she said okay daddy but she doesn't really sound like that but no <laughs> i think you need to put that quote on like your own personal line of children's clothing Cater to five-year-olds to wear that to school <laughs> you know it ain't all disney walk this shit <laughs> yeah exactly yeah uh, that's not bad it's semi-dry east coast orlando weather 90 degrees my weather was crazy bipolar because every place we went the elevation we were at was different the highest elevation was about eight thousand, nine thousand feet up and the day before my birthday the day before my birthday on may 17th it fucking snowed man it was crazy wow. to get to Zion, to get over there. You know, you have to drive through 
Las Vegas and pretty much over by Death Valley in the desert. So temperatures can get up to 103, 105. Uh, I don't think it got hotter than 105, but still 105 is fucking hot. We get to Zion and it's, you know, throughout the day, it didn't pass like 85, 86. We ended up going to uh, Bryce Canyon right after. And fuck, man, we were sleeping in 27 degree weather in a tent and neither of us were really prepared for it. And this was maybe May 13th, I think. And we had these towels because we were able to take a shower for the first time in three or four days. And we had these microfiber towels. And normally, a microfiber towel will dry in like 10 minutes. It was so cold and damp out. It didn't dry at all, but it froze in place. But uh, it's been interesting. I was never expecting to experience snow in May. So it was kind of a nice little cherry on top for the old birthday celebration i guess right on man well at least i mean at least even in the serenity of nature you still were able to have an exciting birthday i personally thought that your birthday breakfast that you put up on facebook was you know was was quite adventurous and fun I'll tell you this, those uh, breakfast, it's like, I'm trying to think of the brand name, Mountain... Man, just mountain say man, something or just other. say Mountain Man. Mountain Man, it's Mountain <laughs> Man, but it's it's these uh, freeze-dried foods, and you can get breakfasts, you can get lunches, you can get dinners, in fact, we got some dinners that we didn't eat, because we kind of got sick and tired of the breakfast, and the breakfast was eggs and bacon. The eggs were made out of apparently real eggs, but the bacon was completely fake, Each bag is one serving, so we would share a bag, which the preparation is super easy. You just heat up hot water till it boils, pour it into the bag, and you eat it out of the bag. It's pretty great. We share it. Uh, Then we would, like, both eat a bar or something or some fruit, and then we'd go on do a hike, and there you go. We were eating it solely for nutrition. Well, as the trip went on, the, the idea of not having to rely on that and maybe spending a little bit of money to get a decent breakfast was more of a thing, you know, that was constantly in our head. So we started off like bare bones, super rugged, you know, like we're just going to eat and drink whatever we have. We got the beer from the Walmart. We got the firewood from the Walmart, which actually the firewood Walmart is the best firewood you could get we got firewood from a campsite and that firewood sucked but walmart firewood was great that's uh camping tips from tim right here from the sls cast but then as of course as the trip went we became more open to the luxuries of not eating freeze-dried breakfast food well i will say this i i um my, my food choices were um shall we say somewhat better than yours <laughs> <laughs> what do you or, say like lamb duck i actually did have some lamb i <laughs> had lamb while I was there. but i will say this i had gotten into a weight loss competition earlier this year and um while i ultimately did not win th- that's okay i still managed to lose a little over 30 pounds and uh which is nowhere near where i need to be but but hey you know every step so that's a good so step in the right yeah, direction 30 pounds is good the, yeah, step yeah. in the right direction i was both elated and so sad because I just simply could not eat as much as I used to be able to eat. And you get these like just gigantic fucking meals uh, when you're on the dining plan, the deluxe dining plan at Disney. Because you get 
a full appetizer to yourself. You get the full entree to yourself. You get your own full dessert to yourself. And Jesus Christ. Yeah, per person. Per person. This is what you get on the deluxe. Jesus one. Christ. Yeah. Is there like a kid's price? Because I can't see your daughter eating. There, are, there is. And yet she also really? gets the kid's appetizer. She gets the kid's entree. She gets the kid's dessert. What's so, a kid's appetizer? Uh, generally like a salad or uh, carrot yeah. sticks and ranch and something, something like that. Ew. You know, so carrot sticks. You're at Disney World. Why does she have to eat carrot? She sticks doesn't. And no, no, ranch? you don't have to. You just these are. Oh. These, and and at one point she was like, I don't really feel like one, and I'm like, okay, no, no problem. That's fine. Don't you don't have to get anything if you don't want to. And what, so what's, what's the adult appetizer? Uh, Real quick. Whatever the appetizers like uh, crab cakes or like at, at La Cellier. Um, my dad had this really cool cheese plate. He even got it. He paired it with a wine and stuff like that that he had gotten. And then I got this amazing uh, selection of meats and stuff. So like a venison, like a, a venison sausage or whatever. And then this like, you know, s- really special ultra kind of ham. And th- and then, of course, they had uh, like a goose liver pate on um you know, that, that was already on bread and stuff like that. So. Good God. Yeah, goose liver pate. Yeah. And that was, the, and that's the appetizer. Shit. That was just the appetizer. And I'm like, I, I couldn't even finish the goose liver pate because the bread was so thick that they had it on. And, and I mean, seriously. Oh, well. The whole. Those sound like Disney World goose liver pate problems right there. <laughs> and the thing is, is like, after I finished, and, and of course, pickled microgreens were, you know, part of the little selection there. And so I managed to get through those little meats and i mean it grand total might have been about two and a half ounces of meat not including the pate on the bread so i mean it's not a lot they're very small selections it's an appetizer and i'm sitting there going how the fuck am i going to eat a meal i i what you know and so i get the i get the ribeye and everything and i mean i had like and not including the fat and stuff because ribeyes are naturally a lot fattier and stuff so i trimmed all that away i still probably had like 40 percent of that steak that i didn't eat I was so sad. I'm like, this food is just, I can't. But at the same time, I was really proud of myself for not overdoing it. That's good. I mean, it's difficult at first, but it'll slowly become easier to turn down goose liver pate. (laughs) Well, it sounded like you and your daughter and your pop had a trip of a lifetime. We did. Oh, and two things real quick. If you get a chance and you're there, definitely meet Star-Lord and Baby Groot. Um, cause that's really, really cool. The baby Groot is just freaking awesome. And don't ever take spray tan sunscreen. Don't ever take it with you to do just, just never just do yourself a favor and never use spray sunscreen, um, uh, in travel mode. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the risk. Um, we had a bottle basically explode in my backpack. So while we were in the magic kingdom, so don't. Just don't. Just don't. Just use the tube stuff and be happy. <laughs> well, I mean, that could be that could work in your advantage because then you can just scoop it out with your hand and it doesn't see, like molasses. It doesn't and work just that plop way. it on. Yeah, yeah, just it ends up just turning into this puddle mess. It I was really bummed out because it it totally ruined Evie's autograph book because it had soaked up oh. and it, yeah. So I had to go and uh, that was one of the times we separated. Was I went and pleaded my case to the to the Cinderella's royal table people. I was like, please, oh my God, look what happened. And they were like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. So, Wait, when you say Cinderella's royal table people, mm-hmm. are they like, 
Is that like a specific place you go to to plead your case at Disney World <laughs> to get a new autograph book or get a refund? Or well, anything like I that? just happened to be where we were when we got the first set of autographs. Did you kneel down? Did you like take a knee and bow your head? I, 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 I did not. Not at that time. Anyway, so we should probably see if there's anything in the old mail sack. We are expecting a couple emails. I know one from Johnny White Trash. He's been talking about an email for a couple weeks now. Yes, well, uh, look, Johnny, I love you, but your follow-through on these things is, shall we say, less than stellar. <laughs> I will. I, I just sit back and wait to be pleasantly surprised. Plug in the jingle. All right, so uh, I only have 92 messages here in the inbox, so I'm I'm just looking at this point. For emails just bypass the erectile dysfunction spam and i'm not okay i'm seeing all these wonderful followers we have like tons of followers here but uh no nothing from nothing from johnny nothing from any of our other special listeners nothing from dirty diana <laughs> dirty diana no um <laughs> no well, you got you got to throw in the little no nah, at the you know because that's what Michael Jackson that's how Michael Jackson sang it you know it's, you're gonna you're gonna do it you gotta do it right um, no we don't yeah nothing from anybody just tons and tons of followers looks like about looks like around eighty five followers on uh, Twitter to mention thank you very much after checking the old mail sack if you want to send us an email. We'll at least check to see if you do it. <laughs> you can do that by sending us an email to the show at slscast.com. And you can, of course, always follow us on Twitter by following at the slscast. There we go. So there's that. I guess without further ado, should we go ahead and jump into the old news? Sounds good. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> First up from me, I've got a pair of stories here, actually, uh, both on the same subject. So we're going to start off here with TheVerge.com by way of Caitlin Tiffany. Netflix booed at Okja's Cannes premiere. Netflix's first Cannes Film Festival kicked off with a rocky start when audiences at Bong Joon-ho's I'm sorry, Bong Joon Ho's, uh, Okja premiered... Blah, 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 blah. Wow, I'm really good at this. When audiences at Bong Joon-ho's Okja premiere booed the Netflix title card. Reports from the festival say the first 10 minutes of the film were also playing in the wrong aspect ratio, leading to more booing. The screening was started again from the beginning with the correct ratio, and Netflix's title card was booed again louder, according to The Hollywood Reporter's Tatiana Siegel. Uh, Amazon... Amazon's title card was also reportedly booed by a small group at an early morning press screening of Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck. Moving over here to Inverse.com by way of Jordan Zakarin. It says here, this is a this is an op-ed piece, but still it's interesting to note, Netflix isn't killing movies, Hollywood studios and theaters are. And it says here, there is nothing like seeing a good movie in a movie theater, the big screen, dark room, and experiencing something profound with a group of strangers. It's the ideal cinematic experience, a tradition handed down from generation to generation. 
If only there were more good movies in theaters. Unfortunately, the movie theater-going experience feels increasingly like a vintage thrill from a bygone era. There are a number of complicated factors to blame, but contrary to the accusations thrown by jeering film critics, booing audiences, and jury members at the Cannes Film Festival this week, Netflix is not the main culprit. Movie studios and theater chains are dealing in self-sabotage, going all-in on iffy jackpots while their chips slowly dwindle. Can announce next week, I'm sorry, can announce this week that starting next year, it would no longer consider Netflix movies for competition. The ruling is ostensibly due to the fact that Netflix movies are available on the streaming service at the same time as they hit theaters. French law requires a three-year window between the two to help finance local art. But audiences there weren't booing over tax issues. It's a matter of elitism. Netflix has two movies at Cannes this year, and audience members booed at the premiere of Okja, the new film from South Korean master Bong Joon-ho. It wasn't the film's quality, it got glowing reviews, but merely the fact that it'll be available on Netflix right away. Cannes is a world of, pu- of cinema purists and jury president Pedro Almo. Almodovar, a master filmmaker himself, has said that Netflix must play second fiddle to the century-old traditions of the film world. Quote, I personally don't perceive the palm d'or should be given to a film that is not that is then not seen on the big screen. All this doesn't mean I am not an I am not open or celebrate new technologies and opportunities, but as long as I'm alive, I'll be fighting for the capacity of hypnosis of the large screen for the viewer. End all quotes there. Now, the article goes on. That is barely even the first fourth of the article. I'm going to stop there because it makes a lot of points. But what it's showing here is that, um, and, and again, crossing that with what happened at The Verge, uh, or what happened at Cannes that was reported via The Verge, um, we have people who seem to be ignoring the problem instead of working with uh working with i guess ideas or advancements or the new wave um to come up with some kind of a solution and this is compounded by the tentpole problem which we have discussed but also something that we have discussed which is you know should netflix um, you know, have not necessarily all of them, but one or two or something where, where they do hold off on streaming and just make the cinema experience mandatory. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to get at with these two things. I wanted to make sure that you understood that, you know, the booing was real and what was causing the booing. And then, of course, I wanted to make sure we talk about a little bit more about what the general thought process is out there. You have one camp that is staunchly in the past, um, and I think we can agree on that. Um, that says if it's not a if it's not a real movie if it doesn't come out in the movie theater. Versus people who say this uh, problem that we have is more about the studios putting out crap and expecting everybody to just go see it all the time. Uh, we're going to be experiencing this, uh, quite frankly, we're going to be experiencing this again next week with Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, we've got another Transformers movie, and there's like virtually no end in sight for this kind of stuff. While theoretically, I think this is supposed to be the last Pirates movie, theoretically, even with Logan, they're already working on expanding X-23. So, I, I, I don't know. Tim, jump in. 
What I mean, what are what are your thoughts on this issue? I, I think it's bullshit that they booed Netflix just because it was Netflix. Um, I can understand frustration at the wrong aspect ratio and stuff, um, and, and I could understand a little bit of frustration coming out by having to restart the movie, but just simply because of title card issue. And then even somewhat, not as much, but even a little bit with Amazon, who, as you aptly reported last week, or I say last week, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, they have put a movie, they did Manchester by the Sea, totally in theaters on its own. Sure. And now it's streaming on Amazon. And they're still As of like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and, they're st- and they still got booed at Cannes. What, th- what are your thoughts on this? Where, where, where do you land? Or do you? I like what Amazon's doing. I like what I like how they handled Manchester by the Sea. I'm a firm believer of if you're going to release a movie like that and you want it to be taken seriously, at least right now, release in the theater for a period of time. Manchester by the Sea did pretty okay at the movie theater, if I remember correctly, and it made money. People wanted to go see it because it's good. Again, the problem with Netflix is that they, I mean. They don't have super. They don't have a super solid track record of making great movies, um, like even the the Paul Rudd one when he's taking care of the boy with the. the oh yeah, like the fundamentals. Of, yeah, fundamentals of caring. Yeah, that I mean that's a good movie. I would have saw that at the movie theater. But the the issues with that movie are issues that you know that you uh, that you normally don't find at movies that you would go see at the movie theater, you know, like really shitty blue screens, really shitty directing choices, really shitty uh, or really shitty filmmaking choices, for example. True. However, I would like to counter with the fact that and and, and I and I'm hoping that we're seeing the turn. I, I, I'm hoping that, you know, we're, we're seeing where it where, you know, it's starting to make that turn. You know, Netflix is the only one who stepped up to make The Irishman. And this is something that Scorsese has been wanting to do for, you know, what, 20 years now? So we're seeing more, we're starting, I think we're really starting to see the glimmer, uh, that light at the end of the tunnel, where it's not just about necessarily passion projects anymore, but we're starting to see where real finance is coming through and real potential for filmmaking is starting to happen because of the way Netflix does things, not in spite of it. And well, I mean, I, I honestly hope so because they definitely have potential. Their TV, I mean, they have great shows. Their their series content is oh, yeah. phenomenal, absolutely. Or maybe not. I mean, it's it's great. I don't really know if any of them are actually phenomenal or not, but they're great. And uh, their documentaries, they I mean, they put out great documentaries. I know a number of those documentaries, they acquire and distribute them, not necessarily make them, but still, I mean, there's some kind of taste there that I can get behind. With The Irishman, I don't know if they're actually funding, are they funding it or are they distributing it? Oh, no, no, they're, yeah, they're, they're actually uh, they're funding it. it. They're, yeah. Oh, wow, okay, well... Since it's Martin Scorsese, and I know we've talked about this at length uh, uh, in the news uh, a month or so ago, like, I, I I don't know. I think a lot of it, my issue with Netflix and their movies is the producing, you know. Some filmmakers sure. don't need all the control. Like, they need somebody to help them out, to rein them in, to give them better ideas, to, to, to put a limit on things. And, I, I mean... And with somebody like Martin Scorsese, who is a seasoned filmmaker, 
yeah, I'm kind of more interested in seeing what he'll bring to the table. So, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want Netflix to succeed. I mean, they have, they have. I mean, it's, it's a great opportunity for them, and they have the ability for streaming. But I, we can't. I mean, we still have to use movie theaters. And I, I as for releasing movies, I think Amazon has the right idea of releasing it at the movie theater for a couple months before streaming it on their site so right on man well jump on in what do you got for us sir okay so my first few pieces of news are all passings which i know a lot of you are probably not too thrilled about hearing uh but these are three actors that i like quite a bit one of them you've definitely heard of the other two names maybe not so much um and we are actually going to talk about them more in length next Week, But the first passing is Roger Moore. Sir Roger Moore, James Bond actor, dies aged 89. This is via the BBC. He played the famous spy in seven Bond films, including Live and Let Die and A View to a Kill. Sir Roger's family confirmed the news on Twitter, saying he had died after, quote, a short but brave battle with cancer, end quote. The statement from his children read, quote, Thank you, Pops, for being you and being so very special to so many people, end quote. Quote, With the heaviest of hearts, we must share the awful news that our father, Sir Roger Moore, passed away today. We are all devastated, end quote, they said in a Twitter post. Um, and uh, the article does go on from there. Again, we will talk more about Roger Moore next week. That, again, was a BBC News article from May 23rd. Um, next up here via Variety.com, Powers Booth, Deadwood Sin City actor dies at 68. This here is written by Lawrence Yee and was published on May 14th. And it says this, Powers Booth, a prolific character actor on the small and big screen, died Sunday in Los Angeles. He was 68. According to his rep, Booth died in his sleep Sunday morning of natural causes. The veteran actor was best known for playing snarling villains like Curly Bill Brocious in the 1993 Western Tombstone and saloon owner Side Tolliver in HBO's Deadwood. He's also appeared in several comic book shows and movies, portraying Senator Rourke in Sin City in its sequel, Sin City A Dame to Kill For. He also had a small role in the Avengers and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. His talents weren't only limited to genre material. Booth played former Mayor Lamar Wyatt on 26 episodes of the country drama Nashville, as well as Judge Wall Hatfield on Hatfield and McCoy's. Prior to that, he played Vice President Daniels on 24. Actor Bo Bridges tweeted news of Booth's passing on Sunday, saying, quote, It's with great sadness that I mourn the passing of my friend, Powers Booth, a dear friend, great actor, devoted father, and husband. And the article goes on from there. Next week, we will be talking about Powers Booth as well as uh, reviewing a film that he is uh, amongst older folk and and people that watch a lot of movies from the 80s he is known for being in a little movie called southern comfort that came out in 1985 86 87 late 80s i should say and i'm really excited to talk about that next week um, i think that'll be a nice little in memoriam of powers booth again check out that variety.com article powers booth deadwood Sin city actor dies at 68 if you want to read more about it and lastly the last rip via screenrant.com 
Character actor Michael Parks passes away at 77. This here is written by Tom Chapman. And it says that Hollywood is mourning a loss today as legendary character actor Michael Parks has sadly passed away aged 77. The star has over 100 film credits to his name and frequently collaborated with Kevin Smith in recent years after having played several roles in Quentin Tarantino's movies. Born in California on April 24th, 1940, Parks' early life involved him being a jack-of-all-trades. His first jobs included picking fruit, digging ditches, and even fighting forest fires before the acting career took off in 1961 when he portrayed George MacMichael on ABC's sitcom The Real McCoys. Parks' other early acting roles included on the religious drama The Bible in the beginning and medical drama The Eleventh Hour. It was later in his career that Parks had a particular boost to his CV, frequently collaborating with out-there director Kevin Smith on projects like the horror comedy film Tusk, where Parks portrayed creepy seaman Howard Hauer. Smith broke the news with a heartfelt note on social media and left a touching tribute to the late actor. Smith was clearly touched by his time with Parks and notably wrote several roles for him. Other roles created with Parks in mind included the lead in indie horror film Red State, where he played Pastor Aben Cooper, a none-too-subtle riff off the Westboro Baptist Church and Fred Phelps. The article does go on from there. You can read the touching tribute by Kevin Smith here within this article. Again, that was character actor Michael Parks passes away at 77 via screen rant. And that was published on May 10th. So again, RIP Sir Roger Moore, Powers Booth, and Michael Parks. The three of you will definitely be missed for sure. That's definitely some sad news. <laughs> pep us up, Matt. Pep us up. Bring I us. I don't have anything to pep. My mine's all about death too. My last piece of news is death. Uh, okay, from HollywoodReporter.com, uh, by way of Boris Kit, Zack Snyder steps down from Justice League to deal with family tragedy. Yes. Oh God. Um. <laughs> so, oh, I, I and and the the chuckles here are ironic. We, this is not in any way, shape, or form good news. No, not at all. The filmmaker's daughter died by suicide in March, prompting him to take a break from work and hired Joss Whedon to finish the Warner Brothers superhero pick. Quote, I've decided to take a step back from the movie to be with my family, be with my kids who really need me, end quote. Superheroes have always been about doing the right thing in the hardest of circumstances. Now, Zack Snyder, one of the biggest filmmakers in the genre and the director of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice and the upcoming Justice League, finds himself in just such a situation. Snyder tells The Hollywood Reporter he is stepping away from Justice League, Warner Brothers' all-star DC Comics superhero mega-movie that is in post-production, in order to deal with the sudden death of his daughter. Snyder's wife, Deborah Snyder, who is a producer on Justice League, also is taking a break to focus on the healing of their family. Stepping in to shepherd the movie through post and the shooting of some additional scenes will be Joss Whedon, the Avengers filmmaker and creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. With Whedon's help, the movie is still on track for its November 17 release date. Snyder's daughter, Autumn Snyder, died by suicide in March at age 20. Her death has been kept private, with only a small inner circle aware of what happened, even as the movie was put on a two-week break for the Snyders to deal with the immediate effects of the tragedy. Zack Snyder says he was initially eager to return to the film, which stars Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, Jason Momoa, and Ezra Miller. 
Quote, in my mind, I thought it was a cathartic thing to get to go back to work, to just bury myself and see if that was the way through it. The demands of this job are pretty intense. It is all-consuming, and in the last two months, I've come to the realization I've decided to take a step back from the movie to be with my family, be with my kids who really need me. They're all having, they are all having a hard time. I'm having a hard time, end quote. And, of course, the article goes on from there. That they do say that the studio is behind the movie, and they definitely feel that Joss Whedon um, is good to go to step in and you know get the last few shots that needed to be done, uh, which they realized needed to happen after some test screenings happened. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then they're looking forward to him finishing up the post-production. Um, I have seen some pretty nasty comments uh, in regards to the seemingly literal glee people are having that Snyder is not going to be here. I mean, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of liking Zack Snyder's work, loving it, hating it, how happy or not happy you've been uh, with the DC-helmed movies he's done so far, um, I mean... This is just completely fucking unimaginable. And it's not like, number one, that's completely fucking unimaginable. And number two, it's not like Whedon is going to completely, you know, redo the movie. Uh, it seems like we're definitely looking at like, you know, 85, maybe even closer to 90% of the work is done. And Joss Whedon is just kind of coming in to supervise the last few months just to make sure everything gets taken care of in a timely fashion. I'm really kind of disappointed at the response that I've been seeing to this. There's just so many people who are so vitriolic. And, and I, I get it. Uh, me, I, I, I of all people, I understand. As a person who really enjoys the Marvel movies overall, I, I admit they're, they're flawed to a certain extent, but definitely overall I enjoy the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I have been... I wouldn't say particularly hard on DC, but definitely don't don't enjoy it as much. Um, I am not happy that Snyder is stepping away. I think if anything, if anything, if those who are admitting their glee at this or, and just being complete pieces of shit, uh, you know, in terms of their humanity, um, I would think that this would, you know, actively undo anything that says that Snyder couldn't hack it as a director for these films. Um, because now anybody who's going to be an apologist would then just step in and say, oh, well, we don't know how much was really Joss Whedon or not, blah, 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 blah. I think based on the, the trailer that I, and I've only seen one trailer for it, but based on the trailer that I've seen, it really seemed like they finally nailed the tone here. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week in terms of you know just timeline to go see the new wonder woman film i know he's not he didn't direct that but i'm really looking forward to seeing how this stuff is really going to start pulling together but i guess my question is in regards to this article is how much of an impact will will this actually have on the film um, Joss Whedon, I'm sure, is going to do as little as humanly possible to alter Snyder's vision. But at the same time, Joss Whedon's touch is unmistakable. And where do you think that impact will be felt? Will the reshoots 
or not the reshoots, the additional scenes being shot, will you be able to tell? Um, for example, there there are always like um, in uh, I can't remember if it was Sin City. I think it was Sin City where Rodriguez let Tarantino shoot one scene, and everybody could tell without even having to blink an eye which scene that was that Tarantino got to shoot. What kind of effect, if any, especially as it's capping off the production, do you think that Whedon's touch is going to have, if any? One thing to keep in mind is that the crew working on the movie still is Zack Snyder's crew. And they've been working on this movie for a a while. I'm sure most of the same crew people have been working on Wonder Woman as well as the uh, uh, Batman v Superman or mainly, probably mainly Batman v Superman, since I, I think this one directly kind of crosses with the tone, like tonally and aesthetically, you know, it shares a lot of the same qualities as Batman v Superman. But you have all these crew people that have been working for Snyder for so long, they have a grasp of what they need to do. So I, I think aesthetically, not much is going to change, if anything at all. What will change mainly is some blocking, the cutting, or, or excuse me, the editing of it, which Joss Whedon has, he has, he definitely has a unmistakable look to his films and quality to his films and feel to his films. But in this capacity, I don't think anybody's going to really see it as much. And I think he's smart enough to do this as a favor for, not necessarily as a favor, but he's doing it for Zack Snyder, and I don't see Joss Whedon as a person to completely change a movie behind his back, but instead, if he has to make changes or tweak things, he will keep Zack Snyder and Zack Snyder's uh, filmmaking abilities in mind, or his style in mind, when he does tweak the movie. So, when it comes down to how much of Joss Whedon are we going to see, I don't think it's going to be that much, and I don't think it's going to be noticeable at all. True. True. And any thoughts on the human scum who are happy that this has happened? Oh, fuck you, people. Like, What's I know that? what you're talking about. Because I've been, <laughs> I've been, I know exactly what you're talking about. And with the horrible tragedy that happened in Manchester, I was introduced to even more scum with that. People just can't help but to troll you know, others within like within these horrific situations, you know, like making Ariana Grande jokes, you know, when something horrible happened at her concert. People are just awful. Hopefully these are the type of people that don't listen to our show. And I hope these aren't the type of people that we interact with on a daily or, or weekly basis, whether it be via the show or on social media or anything like that. Luckily, of what I've seen after the Manchester tragedy, a lot of a lot of our uh, Twitter friends and followers and the people that we follow have been sticking up and, and, and pointing out how horrible certain people have been reacting. And, and in light of that, I just want to throw out there, look, I am probably one of Ariana Grande. I mean, how the fuck do you have a name that sounds like a goddamn coffee? I mean, come on. I I am not a fan of hers, all right? By any stretch of the imagination. Not to mention, I don't really think she's that good of a person in real life based on the things that I have seen and that I have read. I don't care for her music. But that chick stepped up and is literally offering to pay for the funerals of the people who passed away at that event. 
That's fucking aces in my book. All right. She didn't have to. She could have made any number of humanitarian gestures or anything like that. Um, but to literally say, holy crap, you know, you don't need to worry about this during your time of grief. Let me help you take care of this. That is fucking amazing. So, you know what? Fucking anybody who wants to say anything different uh, or who wants to troll, uh, fuck that shit. You know, just like Tim just said, oh, you know, fuck you. (laughs) The losers. (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're the losers. I wish I wish I could I wish I was on video because then I could do the little okay things and so you you won't believe how huge huge you're huge fucking losers huge. <laughs> so um, anyways, all right. Well then that closes out the news for me, sir. What else do you have? Or if no, I think uh, I think we should move on because really the other piece of news I'm looking at a shorter piece of news pertains to the Holocaust and I think <laughs> oh <my> we're. God. <laughs> How can we like, go no down joke. The no joke. All of these but wonderful actors who pass away, Zack Snyder's horrible family tragedy, going into the Manchester bombing. Yes. You know, you know what? Just do it. We may as well just get it out of the way. I know you've been sitting on it for a while, so just just let's do it. Go ahead. Okay. I guess I'll I'll start it off how I was planning on starting off this. Matthew, with VR becoming a thing, or actually I believe VR is currently a thing i suppose if you can afford it what what would you like to experience in vr whether it be a documentary or a movie like if it was a documentary what would you want that documentary to be about to fully experience in vr if it was a movie what kind of movie would you want it to be to fully experience it in vr and get something out of it okay if i could choose any if, if, if if it has to be in the realm of cinema I'm not, I'm gonna full nerd out, man. It would, I would have a tough time choosing between Star Trek and Star Wars. I'm just not gonna lie. I would totally be fucking holodecking it up. Or, <laughs> um, or I would be trying to do fucking lightsaber battles of some form or fashion. I mean, because those worlds are so immersive with so much different badass shit that you could do, um, in VR. If it has to be in the realm of cinema, I would choose Star Trek or Star Wars, and I don't know which one. Um, but uh, that would be my choice, sir. What? Why do you ask? And this is where things get a little bit more depressing. Uh, 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 apparently, <laughs> and I shouldn't say apparently, but a lot of people consider VR to be a gimmick. But there is one documentary that proves VR filmmaking isn't just a gimmick, and that documentary is a devastating Holocaust documentary. Yes, via gizmodo.com. A devastating Holocaust documentary proves VR filmmaking isn't just a gimmick written by Christina Warren. And quickly here it says this. It's really easy to mess up a film project about the Holocaust, the wrong tone, the wrong direction, and it can all go horribly awry. Add cutting-edge technology and operated by unskilled hands to a topic as devastating as survivor testimony, and you could have a disaster. Fortunately, the VR film The Last Goodbye, which debuted at this year's Tribeca Film Festival, gets it right. The 16-minute film directed by Gabo Aurora in Ari Palitz is one of the most arresting pieces of narrative testimony I've ever seen. In the film, the viewer is guided through the remarkably well-preserved Maginek concentration camp in Poland by Holocaust survivor Pinches Gutar. 
His twin sister, mother, and father were among the 78,000 people who were killed there. He has visited the camp more than a dozen times and says this is his last visit. Wearing an HTC Vive headset connected to a high-end PC, I felt like I was standing there with him as he recounted the horrors that still linger at the campsite 75 years later. I walked around the barracks. I looked directly into the crematorium. I was almost moved to tears. Uh, you can go to this website and read more about this. It also talks about the state of VR filmmaking and its potential. It's a it's a pretty, I mean, it's a semi-lengthy article. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, especially if you don't know too much about VR. Again, that was a gizmodo.com article. A devastating Holocaust documentary proves VR filmmaking isn't just a gimmick written by Christina Warren. You can also see... I forget if it's a. It's been a while since I I watched it, but I, it's either a trailer or like a quick scene of the movie. So if you have a VR headset, you can give it a shot and 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 see if it moves you in any way. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, uh, and I, I hope things like this take off because with youth today being so in touch with technology, this can be used for great and wonderful things, uh, whether it be learning about the Holocaust, whether learning about uh, war, or just any history in, in general, even science. You know, you can do some amazing science videos in, in VR. It's just stuff that's very important, so I'm glad to see it's being used in this capacity. Uh, again, gizmodo.com. Can't stress enough that you have to check it out. A devastating Holocaust documentary proves VR filmmaking isn't just a gimmick, and that documentary is called The Last Goodbye. And that's the end of my depressing news. All right, all right. I, I mean, you know, it is depressing, but at the same time, I do think it's important. I think that um, being able oh, to use sure. those technologies. Yeah. And however, now I know this is going to help anybody listening now, but Samsung has really been pushing their VR package with their new phones uh and i believe that it's through the 24th of course we're recording on the 24th um it might be a little bit longer than that but i think it was through the 24th if you buy a sam if you buy one of the new samsung galaxy 8s or whatever they're throwing in the vr package so you too can try it out um if you're so inclined get into your time machine go back a couple days and <laughs> take advantage of that package deal there you go there you go all right well that does conclude the news and it brings us to our bonus segment of the week which is was it worthy we don't have an opening for this so we're just creating that right now Cool! That's all I got. Okay, so... Um. <laughs> In every family, there's one person who drives you a little crazy. I gotta pick Jill up at four in the morning. She comes once a year and she's leaving on Sunday. But during the holidays... Jack, no fighting this year. There's no escaping it when it's your sister. How we doing? Your twin sister. Are you going bald? Huh? No, 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 you're getting fatter, and your hair doesn't realize it needs to cover more face. Okay. From the producers of Just Go With It and Grown Ups. We two are so alike. We are nothing alike, I promise you. <laughs> she isn't subtle. Jill, this is Otto. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you! He's homeless, right? Are you whispering with a bullhorn or something? Everybody hears you. She isn't shy. I put a little list together of things I want to do before I leave. Studio tour, beach, horseback riding. Let's go! 
Oh! Oh my god! Maybe I should stay out through Hanukkah. I do. And she isn't leaving. She's forwarding her mail to us now! What's this about a twin? Oh, Jackie has a twin sister. Identical or fraternal? Uh, nocturnal, like a bat. <laughs> this fall. Seriously, honey? Can't you try a little harder? She's your sister. Guess who is taking you to the Lakers game? Finally, some twin time. Compliments to Mr. Pacino. What? This is insane, man. You gotta call him. Oh, will you stop, Randy? You know all he wants to do is play Twister with your sister. Family is forever. I crave this family time. Adam Sandler is. Your sister and I grew up on the same streets. When I look at her, I see me. When I look at her, I see me too. Jack and Jill. This time on Was It Worthy, we are talking about the 32nd Golden Raspberry Awards, where we are talking about uh, whether or not Jack and Jill uh, from 2011 was worthy of sweeping the Razzies, okay? And this was the 32nd Golden Raspberry Awards, which was held on April 1st, 2012. And it was honoring, of course, the worst films of 2011. Now, we have several different categories here. Things from, like, worst picture, worst actor, actress, you know, uh, director, screen ensemble, what have you. Really, and, and such such strong movies uh, were among the contenders besides Jack and Jill. Things like uh, Gary Marshall's New Year's Eve, uh, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, um, Bucky Larson, Born to be a Star. Uh, other movies such as Arthur, uh, Abduction, uh, you know, Your Highness, Big Mamas, like Father Like Son. Uh, so there were quite a few bad movies thrown into the mix here. And um, it turns out that Jack and Jill, which of course is the 2011 Adam Sandler vehicle directed by Dennis Dugan, where uh, he plays uh, Jack and Jill, twin siblings, and um, it is completely driven insane by the antics of his sister. Um, while simultaneously as an ad executive um, who, uh, who's trying to land Al Pacino for <laughs> for Dunkin' Donuts um, is uh, is you know forced to deal with her. Uh, this film, as I mentioned, did win everything. Worst picture, worst actor, worst actress, worst supporting actor, worst supporting actress, worst screen couple, worst prequel, remake, ripoff, or sequel, worst director, worst screenplay, and worst screen ensemble. Now, I will say that the only movie, uh, after looking over these, watching some previews, having actually seen a couple of these movies, not because I wanted to, but just because of things in passing, um... Bucky Larson, Born to be a Star, was really the only thing that would have given Jack and Jill a run for its money. Um, and Jack and Jill, despite it being absolutely terrible, um, did have a couple of kind of funny things in it. And the... <laughs> The Dunkachino thing, which you can just go and find. You could just watch that one thing. Um, the Dunkachino from Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I'm sorry, that was funny. It, that was legitimately funny. And I would have to say, 
at least we'll always have that. Um, but um, I, I think I, I, I think that um, I think that really all in all, all things considered, outside of Bucky Larson, Born to Be a Star, which um, you could you could definitely argue might have been worse in certain aspects. Um, what makes Jack and Jill for me the worst offender is that Jack and Jill should have known better, whereas Bucky Larson is kind of expected to be bad. So um, I'm going to say that um, somewhat narrowly, but still there. Uh, yes, Jack and Jill was worthy of sweeping the Razzies as the were and the only film to date to do so uh, as the worst, one of the worst movies of all time. Yelled at me because I rejected Al Pacino. Well, if you need something to do, I'm just fixing the timer and heading off to a big family picnic. We play soccer, eat, steal white people's wallets. What did you say? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> we don't eat. <laughs> hey, baby, get my soul. Thought I was your only vato. Hey, Rosa, hit him, hold him This is my friend, Jill. Hi. That's my father, my mama, my brother Juan, my other brother Juan, Juan Jr., my sister Juanita, my grandma Juangelina, and that... That's a lot of Juan! We're not only Juan. Hey, niños, look, these are my kids. Jose, Jose Jr., and Josefina. They are beautiful. Hi, hi. They all look like my wife, thank God. Your wife, I need to meet her. Where is she? No, she passed away four years ago. I'm so sorry. I, no, I lost no, my no, mother that's recently. That's so right. I love talking about my wife. <laughs> and I know she's up there. Sneaking into heaven right now. Tim? What I really don't understand is why Adam Sandler continued making these super childish and immature flicks after being in that movie Funny People. Did you ever see Judd Apatow's Funny People? I think that came out in 2007, 2008 um, No, but that I recall that being the one where he is trying to teach a stand-up comic the ropes because he's, like, dying or something like that. No, 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 no. No, he's not dying. At least I don't remember him dying, but... Oh, maybe he is. I, I can't fucking remember. There's always some dr- dramatic, depressing twist in Judd Apatow movies, it seems. So that's very possible. But he is actually playing a version. Adam Sandler is basically playing a version of himself. In which, in the movie, he is a wealthy, single, depressed, or divorced, dep- and depressed comedian, actor, who is tired of being in these childish and immature movies like he actually does in the movie within the movie he's like a baby and what's funny is that a couple years later the waynes brothers made a movie where marlon waynes played a baby (laughs) so i mean it was the same kind of concept in this movie within a movie and in uh, in funny people and he was doing like the the you know the the water boy you know the classic adam sandler kind of screech voice that he does so his character gets tired of playing these movies because he like he's not ever being taken super seriously. Yes, he's making money and doing well for himself, but he's not happy. You know, he just fucks women, 
you know, and like there's no serious relationships, and he misses being with his wife and all this stuff. And but and and, and so he ends up hiring Seth Rogen, who is a comedian, to help him write material to actually go out and perform. And so it, he kind of rekindles his passion of being, you know, a stand-up comedian. So a lot of people, when this movie came out, thought, oh, he's doing this. Maybe he's telling us something that he's tired of making these movies. But within a couple years, he makes Grown Ups. Right after Jack and Jill, he did a, a really bad movie. I, I never saw it, I'll, I'll say, but uh, of what I hear, it's awful, called That's My Boy. He did The Ridiculous Six that currently has 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, the Netflix movie. And he also did The Do-Over that has 5%. Sandy Wexler has 23%. Unfortunately... Jack and Jill has six or three, I think 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I actually enjoy Jack and Jill more so than I did The Ridiculous Six. Because uh, I could actually sit and watch Jack and Jill, even though I was high. <laughs> yes, I did not go into this sober. I couldn't even make it through Ridiculous Six high. So I guess that might tell you something. So I, I watched Jack and Jill last night, a little bit inebriated. And it's not a good movie at all. Once you get past the... Mexican stereotypes, the Jewish stereotypes, there's really not a lot of stuff to laugh at because some of those stereotypes, given it's an Adam Sandler movie and I can be childish and immature, uh, what I really liked about Happy Gilmore and, uh, and, and Billy Madison, even the Waterboys, and a lot of that, I mean, they played off of stereotypes. They, you know, it was some of that stuff. But it's, you know, it's, it's good intention in a way. Like, they're not trying to be complete assholes about it. They're just goofing around. And so I kind of got the feeling with this movie, with the stereotypes and whatnot. But the issue with the movie is that they don't do one or two things and move on from it. They build a fucking scene around it. They build characters around it, and they keep doing it. And it's not really that funny what they do. You know, like they say something that just completely ruins what they're trying to go for instead of, you know, incorporating a look, a gesture, you know, a reaction, just stuff like that. Honestly, the only pro to this movie, even though Katie Holmes is in it, let me go back to the cons because it's very difficult to even get into the pros without mentioning all the cons. But a big con, or a big issue I had in this movie, is like every other Adam Sandler movie, he has a wife. And usually the wife is attractive, and she's just kind of there, unless you're dealing with like the 51st Dates, or you're dealing with the uh, 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 Just Go With It, I think, where you have, you know, like one of these well established actresses who is his counterpart to where the, the movie is equally about the two of them, not just about Adam Sandler. This movie, it's more about him and still him because he still plays his daughter and not his daughter, who still plays his sister and Katie Holmes is his wife. And she is just kind of there and more so just there than any of his other movie wives. You know, she's just kind of wondering herself why she's even in this movie. You know, as I'm seriously talking about this, I just really don't understand why I'm talking about it. I think I'm still a little bit in shock that we're actually discussing this movie. So I'm just going to jump to the pro because I might continue just rambling on. So this will kind of stop me. The only pro to this movie is... Just as fascinating as it is sad, and that is Al Pacino. They even mentioned this in the Rotten Tomatoes little comment thing where they said that despite uh, Al Pacino's 
performance. You know, there's nothing else to like about it. Uh, but, you know, his performance is just as fascinating as it is sad. His dedication just might have made up for having to sit through 90 minutes of Adam Sandler in drag and these uh, continuous Mexican and Jewish stereotypes. And you can tell that Al Pacino, he took the role seriously as what any master thespian would do in preparing for a role, but he took the role seriously enough to do, like, theatrical ad-libbing and real character work. I get that Pacino is a master thespian, but he's in this movie enough to seriously question his contributions. Like, did he get, like, when he was reading the script or the amount of time he spent on set, do you think maybe he thought the movie was gonna be... good? Has he ever seen an Adam Sandler movie before? I, I don't I don't understand, but really that's the only reason to see the movie. I actually laughed, more like chuckled a handful of times. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, they're all with all with him pretty much with Al Pacino, like when he's going to the Lakers game and he's trying to be incognito, but he has this full on crazy ass beard going you know the mel gibson beard going and the camera's on him and people are like oh it's al pacino he's trying so hard to act the part of not being al pacino that was pretty funny and the whole boob adjustment gag which i'm not going to get into there's a boob adjustment gag pertaining to uh this the, the you know like the, the the dressing room attendant or whatever which was actually kind of funny so i laughed a little bit but the movie is awful the technical aspects are awful. It, the, the entire the look of the movie is so one note. It looks like they're in front of a blue screen the entire time. You know, so there's no depth. It's so two D, and in every shot looks exactly the same. So I didn't see all the other movies that were nominated, but I'm gonna go with yes, it was worthy of winning all of the Razzie Awards because it's just fucking sad with all the product placement and I don't know. Yeah, I'll just stop. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, there you have it, folks. Uh, we both feel that uh, Jack and Jill, 2011 Jack and Jill, 2011's Jack and Jill was worthy of sweeping the 32nd Golden Raspberry Awards. Um, and uh, we'd definitely like to know what you think so let us know, please. And uh, next week, we are going to be doing a retrospective on uh, doing some picks for some Roger Moore era James Bond flicks that we like. And I, so, and just to be clear, because you did mention Powers Booth earlier, so are we holding off for a second week for Powers Booth, or are we going to do Roger Moore and Powers Booth next week? Oh, no. Uh, the, the movies we're covering for next week. One is a new movie, and the other two are a powers booth movie and a oh, michael parks movie okay, i get it i see that now yeah ah, in honor of powers booth matt should learn to read the pre-show email so <laughs> the bonus segment next week we'll be talking about uh roger moore's james bond flicks and then of course we'll get to the other stuff <laughs> honoring uh our other celebrities who passed away uh, and without further ado i guess it's time for the movie is it not let's do that movie thing all right folks here we go it's the movies. All right, and normally we would have two or more movies, but um, just due to time getting back into the groove and the other movie we were going to watch turning out to 
suck donkey dick. <coughs> King Arthur. <coughs> yeah, like I said, <laughs> we're going to just be covering Alien Covenant. Or, in honor of Epic Film Guys, I coined a new hashtag for them, Covenope. Because there are some people who uh, don't like this movie. <laughs> You've all sacrificed so much to be here and be a part of this thing we're doing. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work. And your courage. We're making history here. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. Covenant, do you read me? Covenant, Covenant. What's happening? I need you back here right now. I need you back. Calm down, sweetheart. Calm down. Tell me to calm down. You're breaking up. All of this to start our new life. Where is it? So, Alien Covenant, 2017 American science fiction horror films, directed by Ridley Scott, written by John Logan and Dante Harper. And uh, it's a sequel to 2012's Prometheus and the second installment in the Alien prequel series. Also, the sixth official installment in the overall Alien film series, uh, and would be the third directed by Scott. Uh, movie obviously stars Michael Fassbender, Catherine Watterson, uh, Billy Crudup, Danny McBride, Carmen Ediogo, Ed and Demian Bashir, uh, with uh, basically cameos um, by James Franco, uh, Guy Pierce, and ostensibly, you know, Numi Rapace. Um, all right, so we're picking up basically 10 years after the end of Prometheus. Um, and just to let you guys know right now, there's, you know, spoilers all the fuck over the place on this one because of what we're going to have to be discussing. So uh, we're just letting you know now, if you don't want any spoilers, then you're going to have to watch this for yourself and then come back. So film picks up 10 years after the end of Prometheus with a with what I feel was probably a three minute opening that desperately needed to be somewhere in Prometheus and not here. Um, but it really gets to the heart of everything that this prequel series thus far and most likely will ultimately carry on to more than likely at least one more movie um, will be about, uh, which is human um oh what is the word i'm looking for um golly gee willikers i can't it's on the tip of my tongue uh, Re religion human discovery um, what it means to be human what it means to be a god what it means <laughs> hubris. to be hubris. a bad movie oh that's okay. that's the word yeah hubris <laughs> <sighs> this is one i'm so disappointed that so many people don't like these movies um i i just really i'm not sure what it is 
where the disc, I, I really and truly don't know where the disconnect is happening, but it is a clear disconnect that has occurred between the people who enjoy this movie um, and have enjoyed Prometheus and the people that do not like either Prometheus and especially the like the massive amount of just vitriol that comes out of those who do not like Covenant. And um, guys, just as a heads up, Tim and I are not going to be, you know, snooty and snarky and bitching at each other over this review. We both have already come to terms with the fact that we, that I like it and he doesn't, and we're going to be okay with that. Where we're going to be trying to focus our discussion is what it is about the movie that uh, causes us to like it or dislike it and see where our discussions go from there. So hopefully we will have learned from movies like Rubber and Hobo with a Shotgun. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so... The movie in and of itself, like I said, it's picking up 10 years after. And here we have Wayland Corp, um, which is now actually uh, Wayland something else now. They've actually kind of gone. Uh, Wayland Utani uh, is now the you know official corporation. And despite, and again, despite the obvious failure of Prometheus, uh, they go ahead and send colonists and a whole new crew and an even bigger ship on an even longer mission to go and find habitable, uh, habitable worlds. Um, and, of course, a neutrino thing knocks out the deal. We also have Walter here, who is basically the um, genetic, or I guess I say genetic, he's basically the android cousin uh, of David. So, you know, for the Star Trek fans and all of us, think lore, uh, you know, if... if if David was kind of turning into lore at the end of Prometheus, uh, then Walter is, is, is dead, is data, right? Data, 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 data. <laughs> um, for my Star Trek fans who know I can piss off by doing both. <laughs> um, we, um, so, so we've got Walter now who's watching the ship and, and you're basically seeing all the kind of the, uh, similar setups to what's been happening, in, to what happened in Prometheus, what have you. Um, there's a damage to the ship due, uh, basically kind of a passenger's thing happens, and damage to the ship occurs, everybody gets woken up. Unfortunately, the captain of the ship, uh, who's, again, James Franco, there is a, there's an accident with his hibernation pod, and he's killed. Um, they, they find another planet, uh, where they're picking up a distress signal from, ah, look, it's, uh, Numi Rapace's character, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. Uh, they're not quite sure who that is yet. They don't quite know who that is, but they decide to go and check out this planet anyway. And then, uh, shenanigans ensue, and we now get the whole, th this is what causes the setup for all the shenanigans happening where we get new aliens who come by and uh, what happened to the engineers after, you know, the events of Prometheus, blah, 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 blah. All right. So we got all that out of the way. Um, let's go back and talk about, let, let's go back and talk about some things. I, I gave this movie, you know what, I got a, I, I was going to give it a four. I, and I really, I really can't. I got to give it a 3.75. Um, and here's why. So we're, we're I'm, I'm not 
100% convinced on the timeline, but it, apparently it's it's further into the movie than I thought. So we have a situation where the lander that they use, um, you know, all everything goes to hell in a handbasket and the lander explodes. I thought that that was about 20, 25 minutes in the movie. Tim pointed out that it's much further into the movie. Now, I don't know that it's necessarily as far into the movie as I thought, but I'm definitely willing to grant that it's probably closer to 40 minutes into the movie than the 20, 25 minutes that I thought it was. Um, I don't think it's quite halfway into the movie, but definitely further along than I thought. From about, I'd say from about 10 minutes into the movie, after everybody wakes up from hyperspace until that landing, until that lander ha- uh, blows up, it's really kind of poor. I was I was somewhat disappointed with the movie, and then from there, um, that that caused for me a whole star to get pulled uh, because it just it just didn't work, and I feel like the series has moved beyond far 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 beyond you know that's it man game over man game over which is kind of what that whole you know twenty to thirty minutes is I mean in a nutshell. Um, the other quarter of a star that I'm pulling to make it to 3.75 is the fact that the package on the whole had to do some very tropey things um, in order to set it up so that eventually what we come to know as Alien can take place. And I feel that despite them being tropey, um, they were necessary, and I think that Scott could have pulled them off a little bit better. But and that's why I give it three point seven five out of five. I still think this is a this is a really good movie overall, and I and I did enjoy it a lot. But it clearly has its flaws. Um, same with Prometheus. Prometheus for me was a fantastic movie, and I did rewatch Prometheus um, even today. After getting into some uh, some discussions online and through Twitter about it today, thanks to Epic Film Guys, especially shout out to them, and also of course that fracking cat um, who we, I was discussing the movie with. Um, and Prometheus, when you see these movies side by side, and and um, and, and again, and I did that. There are just so many amazing themes that were underscored in Alien, um, and to a lesser degree Aliens, uh, but they kind of brought it back to bear in Alien 3. Um, that the, you know, kind of the evils of capitalism, the, um, you know, the, the greed, uh, human, uh, the, the human, human desire to, to move forward, to explore versus, um, you know, the evil, and the banality of human nature as well. All of these things that were kind of underscored in those movies, things that get celebrated in movies like, and like John Carpenter's movies, like The Thing or Escape from New York, um, that were present in the alien, in the original alien movies, um, alien resurrection not included are so much more present here. These themes are so well done. They really are. They're really, really well done. And I feel like they just completely get glossed over because people are expecting the alien movies. They're expecting aliens to pop out and xenomorphs just to tear people apart. And they're expecting, you know, you know, you get away from her, you 
bitch, right? They're expecting those kinds of things. And I think some of the casting has to do with that when you're casting people like, um, when, when you're casting people like Catherine Waterston and you are casting people like Numi Rapace who have similar builds and looks that are at least reminiscent, um, if not almost attempting to carbon copy Sigourney Weaver. Um, but you've got themes of where, where does religion find itself in a world of science? Where, how, how does that, how does faith affect humanity? What is it that drives the hubris that causes this stuff to happen, but at the same time makes it possible to do the things that they're doing in these movies? Um, what is it that can drive artificial intelligence to an end that clearly you could argue gives it a soul not not that it's good um but at the same time how do we treat as a species as as humanity do we truly learn to better ourselves are we always going to look to the one thing we're better than to compare ourselves to it. These are themes that are rife in these two movies. And they're really, really cool to explore. And that's what these movies are doing. Um, and, and I think people, and for me, I think that the disconnect is happening because people are expecting aliens, the movie, to be redone. Um, and, in in and in trying to deliver those elements of the xenomorphs of the engineers and and what have you um they they lose sight of some of those themes to shoehorn that stuff in which causes plot issues it it i can't deny that there are plot issues and especially with like like i said the whole lander thing exploding i mean was really just a whole 20 plus minute segment of game over man game over which by this point in the series for the audience despite the fact that it hasn't happened yet in the aliens timeline we're kind of tired of seeing that Mickey Mouse bullshit. Um, and yet you also have things like David versus Walter. Um, the whole, the, I mean, you've got that whole flute scene at the beginning where, or at, at, as they meet each other and get to know each other. And I'm just sitting there waiting the whole time for, uh, David to shove the, the flute through the back of Walter's head. But instead you get, just blow into the hole and I'll do the fingering. <laughs> did did your theater erupt in in laughing? No. Because my theater did. No, they did the, not. The twelve of us laughed our asses off. I went to a, I went to a four thirty show on Saturday, uh, the whole XD experience or whatever at Cinemark. Oh shit! And it so, was it packed. It was. It was. I would say it was. Wow. Um, Three fourths full, three maybe even eighty okay. percent full. Yeah, and nobody, nobody laughed. laughed. Not, not uh, even a snicker. No, really? no. I mean, I was kind of going, "Wow, really?" That's you know. But I think it's because everybody was waiting for David to kill Walter. Um, 
And then, of course, you don't get those payoffs like that. Uh, and then, and then invariably you do get the payoff because the, how are you going to move the plot forward? Well, obviously it's David who takes Walter's place and, you know, you're sitting there going, you know, of it, you know, it's David. You know, the whole time it's David, yet they play it out for the camera like they think it's Walter. Um, and they also leave it on a cliffhanger so that you get to have you know, if you want to buy in, you get to have this little bit of shadow. And again, these are the tropey things that were necessary because of the story they're telling and the arc it has to take. You know it has to be David. But they, but I really feel that Scott could have done a better job of, 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 of telling that story, of, of making it so that whether or not you like it or want to side with it, there's no reason to hide that it's David. We can already know and you can already just show that and then and then let David, you know, fool the rest of the crew, fool Tennessee. Like what they did in Prometheus where you knew he had the black stuff and he was going to poison somebody's drink with it, you know. And exactly. Like we all we we, we all knew he was going to do it. We all knew he wasn't that great of a guy. They didn't have to hide. I mean, you, I mean, I guess in Prometheus, you just weren't quite too sure what David was going to do, but you knew he was going to do something bad and right. screw a crew member over. Which, so. at the begin, and of course in Prometheus, you're thinking that this is because it's at the behest of Wayland. But when you see the opening three minutes of Covenant, you realize it's because David is evil from the get-go. Um, and, and, and Wayland knows it. And that's the thing is Waylon, they, I mean, the whole conversation they have, Waylon is like, oh my God, this guy, you know, this guy gets it. And yet, what does Waylon say? Pour my tea. I mean, how do you, how do you, I mean, how do you, how do you not shut that fucker down? You know, and, and that's literally the genesis of the whole series. It really needed to be in Prometheus, in my opinion. Um, but at least, you know, by bookending it for the middle, you can you can finally fully understand that David is the story here. Um, it's not necessarily the aliens are the byproduct, but David is you know the story that's being. It's the story of David that you that you're being told. Um, so, I just I personally feel that there are just so many amazing themes that get touched on and looked at, and even with um Orem let's I mean Billy Crudup is Orem he is like his I feel like his character is wasted because um it, one of the things that gets that that gets that people have criticized especially with Prometheus and I feel also are um not entirely fairly uh criticized but still legitimate um is a lot of people don't like the characters the characters always seem one-dimensional uh, and they seem like they're just there to serve as a plot device uh, not even a fair plot element just a plot device and I feel that that's not fair to to, to a certain degree that that it's not entirely fair to the movie itself because the plot is what's kind of suffering um, because the characters are kind of written into the plot instead of instead of written, around the plot to tell a good story and have these characters grow so you end up with people like um oram who is a man 
of faith, right? Now we see from Prometheus where you have to choose what you want to believe. That choice doesn't necessarily define you, but it can be what drives you. And we see that with, um, with Shaw by the end, you know, with her cross and stuff from her dad. Here, they kind of carry it forward because it's pretty much, you, you get a very strong implication that men of faith are looked down on. And what is that, you know, what, what does that say about, uh, about science versus religion? Um, where is it going? Is there room for it? Is it justified? You know, do you, you know, it, could you say that, oh, wow, you know, is, is this the philosophical equivalent of two wrongs making a right? Because, you know, religion used to bash on science and hold science down. So does that make it right for science to hold religion back where it feels it should be just because? So again, wrapped up in just a few lines, um, and a char- and a small character twist in Orem, you've got great theming, but he's ultimately kind of wasted, um, especially because of his, you know, like yeah, he, he kind of snarkily snaps back at 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 Daniels when he's like, "This is a reasonable decision based on the information at hand," right? It's just snarky writing that doesn't help the character. It's basically used as a plot device to justify why they go to the planet. So I get it. There there are issues in there, but I just I think that you've got to look past those issues because they're trying to service I think Scott's trying to service two different groups here. The groups that want to see these themes, they want to see these elements, they want to see an arcing story told that's not the same thing, but at the same time, they want those scary elements, they want those aliens, they want that stuff, which also was something that I thought was really cool, that they didn't do the jump scares this time. Like we've got the girl who's uh, getting her, you know, she's she's trying to clean herself up, and then you know one of the xenomorph things is basically standing behind her, and so they do the little standard pan and tilt, and then and instead of just having your typical jump scare that you've seen in all these different movies and just tearing it apart, what do they do? They literally put you in a POV and have you in the camera face the alien face to face as it just stands there breathing and looking at you and it's kind of like so this must be what it's like when you're about to die and then what happens of course then you know the attack happens and her head ends up floating in the basin i thought that was great they finally have moved on they finally have said look we've done this a bajillion times let's try something new and i liked those elements but then again they kind of spoil it like with the shower scene like again we don't really need it from that perspective anymore um especially when you see shortly after that how david you know talks about breathing on the nose of a horse and it'll follow you forever and all you know and everything like that um you've just got these just so many great themes there's so much good to be found here and so much to discuss 
that's positive and good. And I think that's why more people like it than don't. And it's got positive audience scores uh, on Rotten Tomatoes as well as positive critic scores on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I can understand that there are issues. I just, I, I guess I don't understand the vitriol. And I apologize, Tim. Um, I'm glad that you've jumped in when you've jumped in, but I feel like I've not let you have your say. So I've got a I've got a lot to say because I don't <laughs> I, I have it all written out, so I'm not gonna be you're not gonna be hearing a lot of ums and fumbling, hopefully. I don't want to rehash what everybody is saying about the movie. Because one thing I noticed the harsh critics of these movies is that they're all saying the same thing. Like the people that hated Prometheus, but really liked Covenant. They were like, Oh man, Prometheus, the science, it makes sense. They just take off their helmets and all that stuff. And, you know, they say the, the air is like, there's oxygen and air, but how about the microbes and the pathogens and the disease and just whatever, yada, yada, yada. But then they do it in Covenant and they're like, Oh, but it just worked a little bit better. The science was a little bit better. I really liked how they did this and like that. But then you have the critics that, you know, are like, I, I like Prometheus had had its faults, but Covenant was just gone awful. And it's because of this and this and this and this. A lot of like baseline issues, calling Ridley Scott old and all that stuff. And a lot of these people make really good points. But I think the underlying issue, it's, it's, it's deeper than that. And a lot of it is because of your experience. I don't want to see just another Alien movie I don't want to see a rehash of the first Alien. I don't want to see a rehash of Aliens. That's one of the reasons why I liked Prometheus and was able to look past its faults because it was something that was different. I went into Alien Covenant with a completely open mind for a few reasons. Firstly, because Prometheus was very divisive among critics and fans alike, due to its strong opposition, I wasn't sure how Ridley Scott would handle the sequel. Secondly, because I was skeptical of whether or not the divisiveness of Prometheus directly affected the sequel's title with the inclusion of Alien. I don't know if including Alien in the title was to make obvious that the sequel would now follow the path of the original films, or it was included as a reminder of the direction that the franchise is heading following the journey that you, Shaw, and David embark on at the end of Prometheus. But what urged me the most to keep my expectations at bay were the various headlines and social media posts uh, social media posts from fellow cinephiles and film critics who were completely trashing the movie despite its 72% Rotten Tomatoes score, Prometheus received 73%, just 1% more than Covenant, certainly these same people were a part of that bitch camp that gave Prometheus a bad rap. They weren't. In fact, what I found out after I exited the movie early Many appreciate Prometheus just as much as I do, despite its many faults. Now, I received a lot of flack for leaving the movie midway through, but I had my reasons. What it ultimately came down to was my tolerance for watching a safe movie, one that was obviously made to please the masses. It was a late showing on a work night, and I paid 18 bucks for what I honestly thought was a $6 movie. Sitting there for nearly an hour, I did give the movie plenty of time to, quote, get good. Which I was told it apparently does 
soon after. But I couldn't take any more of the vortex of badness and retreat. What was Ridley Scott thinking? Why did he abandon the questions raised in the interesting setup that Prometheus provided just to go and chase the wrong story? The whole idea of Shaw's determination to know who the engineers were and where they came from, why the engineers created the humans, and why they then wanted to destroy them became the very questions that I wanted to see answered in Covenant. But what did Scott and company end up doing? They go and kill Shaw off-screen, abandon the who's, where's, and why's that became the backbone of the prequel mythology, made David the main antagonist, introduced a new slew of typical disposable characters, and buckle under pressure to make, like Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, yet another sequel in which a xenomorph-type creature stalks frightened crew members in a confined space. Now, for whatever it's worth, it was the David and the Walter homoerotic flute scene that ultimately set my tolerance plummeting. The whole, quote, just blow into the hole and I'll do the fingering, end quote, or whatever they say. That's what did me in the first time. Yet, at the behest of a former friend, I say former because they really didn't like that I still didn't like the movie when I had to see it the second time. At the behest of a former friend and their credit card, I returned the next night to give Covenant another shot. Despite the flack I received from the friend and others complaining that I couldn't fairly judge the movie without seeing it in full, my review stays exactly the same. With the exception of minor details. I have a knack. I think I have this knack. For movies that I deem bad and a waste of time. Unless I'm specifically asked to watch a bad movie, there's no reason to continue if I deemed it a lost cause. To be fair, it does get momentarily better once David enters the film. He brings a dynamic and nuance that the movie drastically needs. But that's simply not enough to salvage the meandering story, familiar characters, and forced setup that we've been exposed to for the past hour. The film is full of numerous components and scenes that cheapen it. There is one moment that actually cheapens both the movie and the franchise, and it's that sexy shower moment. And I call it a moment and not a scene because it happens rather abruptly and uncharacteristically. These characters have been put through the ringer and witnessed the deaths of enough of their friends to make the guy's dick limp for months. But no. They find it within themselves to immediately relax and go have sexy shower time at the absolute worst possible time. The inclusion of this sexy shower time moment, and with all the quick cuts and amped up pacing, turns Alien Covenant into a slasher movie. It's just another device to induce a cheap shriek from the casual moviegoer, also working as an effective teaser for the trailer. Now, Covenant reminds me, in this particular way, of Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, and even Alien vs. Predator. In that, if those movies, which are known to be the inferior, faulty, and cheesy sequels, removed what made them cheesy and overly silly, and actually attempted instead to tell a more serious story, they might have ended up Kind of like Covenant, but possibly even better. 
Unlike Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, in which you already know what you're in store for, Covenant comes across as a failed sleight-of-hand trick. With a new... um, After, in my opinion, an exciting beginning to a unique story with Prometheus, I was blindsided with a new direction, right into rehashed territory, with the final product being an unfortunate disappointment. One of the many complaints people made about Prometheus was that it came across as a straight setup for the next movie. But Covenant doesn't? Prometheus at least had nuance in its storytelling, performance, and the filmmaking. Ridley Scott took his time to tell an overtly complicated and confusing story, especially after the first viewing, but he created a tone, a pace, an atmosphere, which helped carry the movie. Lastly, the most frustrating thing is that I don't know where to place the blame. Are the problems isolated to only the writing, the directing, or characterizations, or as a whole? I don't like placing the blame solely on Ridley Scott, but he is the current ringleader of the franchise. Instead of buckling to the criticisms, following Prometheus, and taking the prequels into another safe direction, he should have carefully listened to those complaints and carried on with his original plan involving Shaw and David exploring those who's, where's, and why's. And that is why I give Alien Covenant 1 out of 5. There are hints of good ideas. There's one scene in particular that I I thoroughly enjoyed. There are a couple of them I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, The first... I guess it's a backburster scene um, right before the, the that one ship explodes. And there's a couple things with David that I enjoyed. That is why, again, I give Alien Covenant one out of five. Well, there you go. So between the two of us, you have an exactly okay movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's what, 2.5, it right? It is. It breaks down to 2.5. <laughs> um, so, okay. Let me, then let me ask you this. Um, so, did you, okay, so do, did you at least, um, find or do you, did you even see any of the themes and stuff that I brought up as worthy of discussing or bringing up? Or do you think that I'm just seeing what I want to see? I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's, I mean, I get all your, your criticisms are valid. I think, I think, I feel you're still being too hard, um, but I don't think that I don't want to say that we're neither here nor there on that. But the themes that I was talking about that I that, that I wanted them to explore more that I really thought that they were trying to bring in shower scene, notwithstanding, because clearly the shower scene was stupid. Um, I mean, no, that's not still not worth it or. No, I mean, I, I think you brought up some good points. I mean, there are things that I certainly, at the time of, uh, like when I, the first attempt at watching it, I, I couldn't get, I mean, I would not get behind it. But after watching it a second time and knowing more so what I was getting myself into, but yet still not enjoying it, I mean, I could still see what they were trying to play around with. There is a very interesting religious aspect to it, uh, not only with the, the crew members and David. But the overall story that it's trying to tell, the right and wrongs of of playing God, and it brings up some interesting questions. But what I can't get over 
are, are are that the questions that they brought up in Prometheus that were to lead into the next film and that the studio 20th Century Fox and Ridley Scott buckled under pressure they they wanted to they wanted to uh, uh, please the masses you know they wanted to please more people and so because of that the movie feels more uh, I, I guess maybe too mainstream, too easy, too soft. It's a uh, it's it's a little bit lighter for anybody to really watch, and, and you know, the casual movie goer to watch it and get a, you know get a kick out of it. Maybe one who is not maybe a big fan of the original Alien movie. I don't know. Like it, it just like you know like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's missing that nuance in the time that he took to tell the story and to develop these ideas. And I get that a lot of people didn't like that in Prometheus, but I mean, I, it seems like more people are appreciating that now. Seeing uh, Alien Covenant, it's just I like I like the more mytho- you know, the you know, taking your time to tell a story, and that is definitely what they did not do with Alien Covenant. And when the movie started getting a little bit interesting, and when they were playing around with ideas, very much like what you were talking about, when a lot of that stuff was kind of clicking more and and and, and gestating a little bit, it was already too late. They then they automatically had to get the alien onto the ship to start the terror, you know, you know, to 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 do all the callbacks to the first alien movie. So, I mean, that's my issue with it. Like uh, another good podcast that had very fav- favorable reviews towards Alien Covenant was the CNC Geekcast. A very cool podcast. I- I've listened to them today and I totally understood why they liked it. They looked at it in a different way and they just got a kick out of it. They looked at it, they they enjoyed the technical aspect more and that's what really held their attention. You know, that's cool. It's just what I really want is the is the nuance. And unfortunately in my opinion at least it it didn't have it and in order for that uh those themes and the characterizations and all that stuff to really make sense and come to the forefront for for me personally i need that build up and i need that nuance and i need that time because a lot of this stuff is very heavy you know when you're dealing with religion and humanity and, and all that stuff you you really need a little bit more time and I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It does. But and I think bit. and I think that's again. I think it goes back. Um, I, I would say that. Uh, um, I would say that doesn't quite jive with my disconnect that I was talking about. But I do think it goes. It, I do think it touches on, um, the studios or Scott um, trying to serve too many people. Uh, um, and and I think that was some, that was also something I noticed. There's there's really when you consider it, there's just really not a lot of blood and gore in Prometheus. And people were like you said, like oh, where's all the aliens, right? And they definitely at, at least gave a lot more service to that in Covenant um, for sure. And, and so I can see how you know when when you, you know you're trying to please everybody, you end up pleasing no one. But I, I would say that the that the movie is strong enough that it that there are still enough points of light that it, it succeeds despite the failings that you you aptly pointing out. I'm not. I mean, again, I can't I can't argue that they're not there. Um, I think where where our diversion happens is how serious it is to the overall enjoyment of the film. Which you know, you the listener now get to kind of really see. That balance to it, I think, is really important because you have, like, you you noted the CNC cast; they really, really liked it. 
Epic Film Guys. I was listening to them today. And they had four different people. Epic Film Guys is actually, you know, just a two-man podcast. But they also brought in two other guys. And the four of them were just completely shitting all over <laughs> Covenant. That's where I came up with Covenope. And, and so I'm kind of glad we have us where one of us who really likes it and one of us who really just, you know, damn near hates the thing to see where those kinds of ideas are coming from. So I'm actually kind of glad that – actually, I'm not kind of – I am glad that we – are looking at this from such different viewpoints that we can really see where that thought process is coming in. And, and, and I think it's really important to the discussion that we have talked about Prometheus as well, which is something that isn't as strongly brought up, uh, at least in, you know, in Epic Film Guys. I don't know if CNC was dissecting Prometheus as much. But. They, they mention it. They mention it a little bit. I, I guess whenever you're referencing Alien, the story of Alien Covenant in the whole david and shaw stuff you kind of have to bring up some of their backstory sure and all awesome good talk good talk i I think i think this was a very successful ted talk we did (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed all right well then uh we have definitely gone over some serious time today so we're gonna call it there i think and uh go ahead and talk about next week's movies uh which are going to be pirates of the caribbean dead men tell no tales uh we're also going to be looking at southern comfort from 1981 that is of course in honor of powers booth and and then Wild Seed from 1965, which will be in honor of Michael Parks. So, shall we go ahead and jump into that spiel, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music, music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Of course, you can always get a hold of us by doing... <laughs> I'm all over the place now. So sorry, guys. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and or uh, favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as getting a hold of us on the old SoundCloud. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Danny McBride, I get to say this. I've always had the hair of Lionel Richie since I was a boy, but the mullet sadly is a hairpiece. My wife won't let me rock that hairstyle. <laughs> I like that one. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.